Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of the Bus Driver Experience. Still on lockdown, still on quarantine, but still trying to put out and churn out some great audio recordings for you. Last episode was great. Massive thanks to Leah Hamner, um, head of public health epidemiology and communicable diseases up in Washington state. If you haven't already go listen to that podcast. She gives amazing tips and tricks on how to take care of yourself, how to handle and treat this virus, which you can probably take care 80% of you or 80% of this, uh, the treatments you can take care of yourself at home with typical flu medicines and treatments. So go ahead and check out that podcast. If you haven't already, if you have watched it, thank you so much. And today's episode Staying on the theme of health and wellness, I got return guest, Sean Baker, a medical doctor and just all around ultra athlete, former um, surgeon in the military, uh, in the Air Force, surgeon in the Air Force and the Army, um, and professional, what was it, uh, rugby. I had no idea he was a professional rugby player. Amazing guy, amazing life. Um, And... What he's most known for is his carnivore diet. He eats a diet primarily of, or mostly of animals and um, red meat primarily. Um, Since Sean has done this, as you can tell, he's been an athlete most of his life. He has become and gone back into the ultra athletic sports. He's broken world records in rowing, um, some crazy feats, and he's at the age of 53. So it's truly amazing what he's done. And he's done all this on an all meat diet. Um, he has several websites, uh, just released a book called the carnivore diet where he talks about different studies that are being, t- that are taking place or have taken place already. And, um, his own tests and results, what he's received and what he's experienced while being on this diet. It's very controversial for most, very controversial for some, but, um, Sean has a great outlook and a great, uh, perspective to share. And as he advocates and advises that, you know, everybody needs to find out which diet is best for them on their own. He's not pushing his own diet. He's literally giving you his own take, his own best perspective of how this diet has helped and contributed to him and the people he has coached or given advice to along the way. So um, whether you're vegan, whether you're carnivore, keto, whatever it is, let go of your emotionally driven um, diets or your emotions that are centered on the way you eat and how the people around you eat and try and figure out what's going to be the best take for you and really enjoy this episode with Sean Baker. Okay. What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to another bus driver experience. And we have another return guest today. We have, I would call him an extreme athlete, <laughs> Uh, an incredible endurance athlete, um, medical doctor, um, kind of want to go into his past too, cause he has an incredible past. I mean, this guy has been in the military. He's a medical doctor, uh, orthopedic surgeon, and now an ultra athlete at the age of, uh, 53. Is it? Yeah. 53. Yeah. 53. We have Sean Baker back on the show. Sean, how you doing today? Welcome back. Thank you for taking the call today. Yeah. Brent, it's good to be back, man. Yeah. I'm doing, I'm doing real well. I'm, I'm, I'm thriving in this time of isolation. It's kind of right up my alley. I'm training. I'm training a lot, and uh, you know, just kind of, kind of being productive with the time. So, yeah, life, life is pretty good so far. Yeah, it's fantastic. Um, I know your Instagram page is always amazing. Watching your workouts, 
you know, the 176 pound kettlebell I think you have that you'll be swinging or um, one of the other medicine balls you're throwing, you're doing medicine ball tosses over the shoulder. I mean, I just recently bought some tires from Riverside over to the house. So now I got some nice sledgehammer, just uh, sledgehammer squats into that. So yeah, you could definitely be thriving in these times, especially when it comes to health, fitness and wellness. Yeah. You know, it's kind of funny. Uh, A lot of people will complain they don't have any time and that's their excuse for not doing stuff. And, and now most people have more time than they thought they had. And so there's really no excuse from that, from that standpoint, but many people are still just choosing to, to sit on the couch and, uh, you know, not, not, to, <laughs> not to do stuff and they can't use that time excuse anymore. Yeah. We're, we're really filtering out the execution and efficiency right now. Who actually is taking part of all this extra time so-called that we do have. And what did you do when you had the free time before where you just, drinking a beer, watching your series on TV, or, or are you going out and making stuff happen? So it's good to see you're uh, making a great use of your time. Um, but since we last spoke and you uh, published a new book uh, called The Carnivore Diet, I just wrapped it up. Um, really, really great stuff. Um, you know, so many questions I have, but, uh, you know, I'll let you take away with the breakdown of, you know, why you wrote the book and uh, what the book's primarily about. Is it just simply as the title says? Yeah, I mean, well, I was asked, actually, the publisher approached me and asked me if I could write a book. I hadn't intended to, to do that. But uh, so that's why I wrote it, because I was asked to write, basically. But, <laughs> you know, there was a need. I mean, I was answering, you know, just question after question after question on social media, and it was a lot of the same questions. So I kind of try to put my sort of take on the diet into the book um, and hopefully provides people some insight, you know, and some knowledge and some you know, thought behind the, the philosophy and why or why it may not work for them. And uh, it's been well received. I mean, I, hopefully it was written in a way that was accessible to a lot of people. I, you know, the art, the target audience was kind of the general person that doesn't really necessarily know much about the diet or isn't necessarily coming from a medical background. So I intentionally kept it at a level I thought was as accessible to as many people as possible. And, uh, you know, we, well, still including the science and you know, an adequate amount of references in there. And I think most people, you know, have enjoyed it. And uh, it's been uh, pretty well received, I think, uh, you know, from a, from a review standpoint and doing pretty decent on sales. And so, uh, yeah, I'm glad I, glad I wrote it. And uh, hopefully uh, it'll benefit some people. Yeah, I think it's a, you know, whatever, you know, tribe or diet thing you're going to read. I mean, it's just great to pick up on the knowledge and insights because I know um, when we spoke last time before and, you know, a few of the other carnivore, uh, you know, members of different forums and groups on Reddit or Facebook, um, you know, a lot of this is like, which is unfortunate, but it's self-research and everybody, you know, trying to test and study and, you know, take in um, as much tests from blood tests to uh, glucose reads, you know, whether the highs and lows. So, some of the people in these groups are, are taking like a very, very, very well thought out um, testing for their, you know, for their blood levels and, you know, to answer those really hard questions, you know, especially one, for example, being saturated fats and cholesterol, you know, is an all meat diet really uh, hindering or negatively affecting someone's overall health? And I think most of the general public doesn't get to see or know, you know, what an all meat diet looks like because, most people diets, I would say, are, are still a blend of omnivore diets, you know, they, they, they really only count so little for the meat being the, the factor that um, that negatively impacts people's diets. Yeah, there's a lot of misconceptions around the healthfulness or unhealthfulness of meats, uh, you know, just looking at the American diet, the standard American diet, which 
is, is, is pretty well accepted as not being particularly healthy. That diet, you know, particularly when it comes to like beef and, and red meat, but beef in particular, only about two to 2.4 ounces of the American diet is beef a day. It's a tiny amount, you know, mm -hmm. and there's a lot of, it's, it's a 70% plant-based diet um, already. Uh, and it's, um, you know, and, you know, to be fair, much of that is wheat, refined grain, sugar, seed oil. Uh, that's where a high percentage of that diet comes from. So it's not really, you know, meat making up such a small part of the diet and then being blamed for uh, the ills. Um, I think that, uh, uh, you know, when we talk about uh, what meat actually does to people in isolation, it's very different from what it does in the context of a standard American junk food diet. I think that's a huge, huge caveat that you have to make. Um, fortunately, uh, from a you know, study standpoint, Harvard University just started a study on its carnivore diet. We've gotten uh, several thousand people signed up for it. So we'll have some data. David Ludwig, uh, Belinda Leonard are the primary researchers on this study. And uh, it should hopefully uh, move the narrative a little bit because we have just, I mean, all we have is speculation based on, well, either positive anecdotes, which I've been sharing for several years now, and then sort of inferences based on a standard American diet, which is by no means anywhere close to a meat-based diet. It's not even, you know, like I said, it's only a few percentage of the American diet actually comes from meat. So uh, hopefully we'll be able to change the narrative a little bit. But I mean, for me, I mean, I, you know, I wrote this book and when I define a carnivore diet, it's basically a diet that focuses on meat, where your nutrition comes from. And then the plants are either fully eliminated or limited to the degree necessary to provide you know the best health you can get, and I think the end of, and that's the most important part is get the best health you can, mm -hmm. uh, you know, in the here and now. Because I, I think that uh, there is this sort of uh, belief that we can predict the future with regard to how long you're going to live or whether or not you're going to get heart disease, cancer, so on and so forth, based on our nutritional practices. Uh, and using basically nutritional epidemiology or some other really weak studies uh, to make those predictions. And, and, and they just can't. And I think that's pretty clear. And hopefully more and more people will come to realize that, uh, you know, we, we really don't know. And there's so many factors that go into those, those outcomes, longevity, heart disease, you know, so on and so forth, that diet one makes up a small part, but two, we, we just are never going to find out for sure and so my uh, sort of overlying sort of message tends to be, let's take this group of, of sick people, and we have plenty of them in, in the United States. You look around, there's so many, you know, overweight, obese, diabetic, you know, uh, inflamed, chronically, uh, you know, depressed, autoimmune disease, whatever, you name it, it's, 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 it's never ending. Uh, such a large part of the population suffers from that. And I think needlessly in many cases, and you can take those people and move them from that sort of situation into a more healthy or a fully healthy situation. And if we focus on that and, and use the things and the tools that we have to do that, we find that a meat-based diet for many people is an excellent tool for moving them into that category. We see, I mean, I see people every day that, uh, you know, go from sick, overweight, diabetic, so on and so forth to, you know, no longer overweight, no longer sick, no longer on medications. And, uh, that arguably is a huge improvement. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think um, 
you know, one of the biggest a um, skept- skeptical uh, idea, you know, looking at the diet from the outside is where are you going to get all your minerals? Where are you going to get all your vitamins? You know, how can we absorb those things from meat? And, you know, um, you know, could you explain you know, to the lay person, you know, where are you getting your vitamin C from? Where are you getting, um, what's your big thing from? Where are you getting your chlorophyll from? You know, things that maybe, you know, vitamin C definitely over time, we're, we're supposed to get these, but, you know, a lot of people are being bombarded, you know, when they're saying, hey, you need certain amount of these like uh, plant minerals and vitamins that, you know, w- some people didn't even know existed before, unless you paid attention to biology and understood like, hey, this thing exists. It's found in, whether it's in water that or certain bacteria or the grass that the animals do consume and gets passed on to the animals and blended into B12. Yeah, so that's a, that's a really good question. Um, you know, you know, you mentioned chlorophyll. There's no, there's no human requirement for chlorophyll. I mean, it's just, uh, you know, I mean, when we know, when we look at the actual biochemistry and this is, uh, you know, not even up for debate, quite honestly. I mean, it's, it's just clear biochemistry. I mean, our, our needs are essential fats, essential uh, amino acids, uh, vitamins, minerals. I mean, and that, that's what you need to nourish a human being. And that, that's never changed. Now, there are other compounds that come in, plant, that come in plants that some people find are conditionally beneficial. You know, some people would argue fiber. Some people would argue certain plant compounds, plant chemicals, polyphenols, uh, things of that nature that, that do provide or can provide benefit in certain situations. But to call them essential is a huge stretch. And the question then becomes what's optimal. And, you know, I think what we're seeing is uh, when people eat a plant heavy diet or a carbohydrate heavy diet, they have some unique needs that are no longer there when you're on a diet that doesn't include those things. For example, um, zinc, for instance, uh, this is something even, even now the USDA has now recognized that if your diet contains a high degree of phytic acid, which comes from legumes, beans, you know, things like that, uh, to a point, Laura, if you're eating a thousand milligrams of phytic acid a day, your zinc requirements double. And if you eat 2000 milligrams of phytic acid a day, then your zinc requirements triple. So we're seeing that there's a differential requirement uh, for these different vitamins and minerals based upon the background diet. And I would argue things like vitamin C, which clearly is difficult to get uh, in just in a meat-based diet. Now you can do that if you if you want to eat liver and some of these organ meats, you can you can potentially uh, hit the RDA of, of vitamin C or even the what's considered the optimal amount of vitamin C if you really want to eat those things to, to a large degree. However, uh, again, vitamin C, we see uh, there are, you know, uh, co-transporter vitamin C and glucose that uh, competitively inhibit each other. And so if you've got a lot of glucose floating around in the uh, digestive tract, you're going to inhibit vitamin C absorption. If you have a lot of glucose around, you're going to inhibit vitamin C crossing across the mitochondrial membranes. And so, you know, magnesium is another one. Magnesium is a cofactor for many, many steps in carbohydrate metabolism. So many people are deficient in magnesium. And when, a lot we're, of eating people. A, yeah, when we're eating a high carb diet, our magnesium requirements go up significantly. When we're no longer eating a high carb diet, then our magnesium requirements are likely lower. And therefore probably it's harder to be deficient in magnesium if you're not eating carbohydrates. And so there's all of these, uh, uh, you know, factors there that change our requirements. You know, uh, you can go back to the 1800s when they were, they were studying in beriberi, early, 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 late 1800s, early 1900s. They saw animals that ate high carb diets 
required more thiamine in their serum, you know, serum levels of thiamine, so they didn't, didn't get the disease beriberi. However, if they were on a low carbohydrate diet, they could have much lower serum levels of thiamine and still not get the disease. And so again, we see all these different differential uh, requirements and then you know, it just goes on and on and on. And so um, the bottom line is, you know, we now have tens of thousands of people who have done this carnivore diet. Um, and I would argue we've seen basically no evidence of, uh, you know, mineral or uh, vitamin deficiencies to any significant degree. Certainly what, what, what we're told would be would happen. No one's gotten scurvy that I'm aware of. I've not seen anybody. I've been doing it for gosh, three and a half years and I continue just to thrive athletically and health wise and uh, certainly no, no, no signs of uh, vitamin C deficiency on my end. And I, and you know, I'm just eating meat basically. Yeah, I mean, it really seems like, you know, from all the carnivore people are practicing carnivore, I mean, they, they also have that really steady uh, flow of um, working working out and taking care of yourself, you know, in the regimen. I mean, that's something you can't really test for. I mean, or something you can test for and have that variable in. But, you know, most of the people I see are usually, you know, going for it to get an, an extra advantage. Like, hey, maybe I'm going to try this because I'm going to be able to, you know, push more, pull more, whatever someone's working on the gym or achieve a certain level of a of you know workout goal i know definitely that's why i would why i've done it and why i've gone after it um you know it's, it's not your typical hey i'm just going to eat meat I, I know it is for some people especially with autoimmune diseases which it's it's shown great 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 um it's, it's helped people get a massive improvements and a hold of their autoimmune diseases um one of the biggest ones i'd see you know you'd see this in movies like game changers or you know, even medical professionals other medical professionals i'll speak to is you know endothelioma function where they're talking about, you know, how, where's, what's the blood pressure and, you know, how much is meat contributing, you know, per, per, um, then against a carbohydrate diet, even though I don't think everybody's testing for just an all meat diet. Um, so, you know, how are people's, um, have you seen tests or your own test of, you know, endothelioma function where, you know, your blood pressure has increased or it's been uh, constricted and has raised, raised blood pressure levels? Um, I, I haven't seen too many people do, you know, dedicated tests on endothelial function. There are there are some really obscure, expensive, rare tests that people can do, and that's just not something most people do. I have seen, however, a lot, a lot of people with blood pressure uh, uh, improvements, uh, by and large. A few, I've seen a few people in the early on, particularly during a transition phase, where they might see a slight bump in their blood pressure, but by and large. Um, and, and you have to realize that anytime somebody talks about one single mechanism, there's a whole giant system of complexity around that mechanism, lots of inputs and lots of mitigating and exacerbating factors that you have to look at. So we really want to look at the big picture outcome. And I think blood pressure, you know, is one of them along with, you know, you know, body composition, visceral fat, so on and so forth, mm-hmm. already, already calcium scans, CIMTs and things of that nature, performance in general, body, you know, those things all play a role, but um, you know the general trend has been as people improve their metabolic health, and that is often losing weight. It's often improving you know diabetic pathophysiology if it exists, uh, chronic inflammation. Then we see blood pressure fall pretty pretty reliably, mm-hmm. uh, and we see it fall with insulin. As insulin falls, blood pressure falls. Uh, I think there's a lot of uh, you know overlap and you know causation uh, between uh, uh, those things. And so in general, yeah, I've seen people 
basically come off blood pressure meds uh, pretty reliably and uh, normalize your blood pressure on this diet. Yeah, that'd be an interesting test to have for people who do maybe don't exercise necessarily and going on the carnivore diet and you know experiencing very, very heavy or ma- massive uh, weight loss and then reading the uh, endothelial functions. You know, is that blood pressure dropping even though they aren't exercising? Maybe the metabolic rate's changing, but you know they're not putting in you know that that exercise or that extra effort that's um, providing it because you know as other medical professionals would say is well cholesterol is one of the is the main thing that we're scraping out of people's arteries um not sugar when we're you know doing uh different exams on people's hearts and and also their you know just the uh whether it be the veins of where the blood's traveling through so uh that that'd be an interesting one yeah again it's so hard to control experiments because you're dealing with people and people never are truthful even when they go to the doctor of what they're putting in their systems how much exercise they're getting every day it's it's really a nightmare. <laughs> you know, and, and that that really reflects a bigger point. You know, with a lot of these just all these health studies. I mean, you know, these nutritional studies where they ask people what they eat, and they just they're not accurate. I mean, that's uh, there was a nice study that came out of Germany two years ago where they tried to verify the food frequency study, and they found that you know when they actually measured and actually weighed what they ate. And then they, what they thought they ate, what they try to remember, they were overestimating vegetable intake by like 82%. You know, it's just, it's just, they, it's just a guess at this point. And so that is what much of our nutrition data and knowledge comes from these people overestimating, underestimating, not being able to remember. And, and that's what we use for trying to develop policy and make decisions on how we should feed people. I think that's uh, it's kind of a bit of a, disconcerting thought well it's like the whole shtick you know if like you go to the doctor and it's like oh are you, you're eating your vegetables today oh, oh yeah absolutely you know it's only 10 a.m in the morning so you've eaten you know two servings of your six servings you're supposed to have today already like oh yeah you know i had broccoli with breakfast and it's like you know no you didn't no one else is following that and that's usually what the doctor is following in terms of you know, what people should be eating and how many servings as well as the size of what they should be feeding um and i i also think it's you know it plays into you know the extreme capitalism we have in society today where, you know, policy can be affected by, you know, how much money and how much, you know, people are going to be putting into a certain study and what kind of results they want coming out of the study and, you know, pushing that study back on other people. You know, it's corrupted, you know, you know, the diets and even the livelihoods and the health of, you know, all Americans per se. I mean, we're, it's, it's hopefully this, uh, you know, not hopefully, but, um, you know, this pandemic, you know, it's it's a big wake up call towards, you know, people who are at risk already of, you know, contracting or picking up, you know, a, a tougher disease. And I know obesity and, um, and being overweight in general, and then all the symptoms that come with that, whether it's diabetes or, you know, heart disease, um, or high blood pressure, you know, we have a high respiratory or respiratory factor, uh, virus that's spreading, you know, people are like, well, those people aren't actually dying from the virus, but it's like, we, we don't we don't know all those records yet, but, you know, they're really, really, really being put into a tough position to try and save themselves, you know, when their body is like fighting three or four times what it can do. It's it's sad. Yeah, I mean, it's you know, this this is just a, uh, you know, there's a lot of controversy about this virus. I mean, it's you know, there's a lot of people have different thoughts on, you know, is it really causing that much death? Is it really even, you know, is it a 
conspiracy theory. I, I'm, you know, I, I don't want to get into some of that craziness, but no, me neither. Uh, <laughs> you know, but I, but I mean, it, it does underscore the point that we have a generally a chronically unhealthy population, and uh, you know, you should be able to get a cold or a virus and not succumb to that. I mean, for most, you know, if you're 85 and you're on, you know, at the end of your life, obviously that's a different story. But you know, you shouldn't be. 40 years old and, you know, be on six medications and have three or four or five different disease processes going on. That's just not normal um, for a person in midlife. I mean, you know, you should be healthy and, you know, systems should be working all fine at that point in your life. And so many people, unfortunately, are not in that situation. So when they do get some sort of stress to their system, they're very, you know, they have a very hard time coping with it, you know, and, 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 and this is, uh, a criticism of the healthcare system in general that we can't fix that. And we, we spend $3.7 trillion a year on healthcare. Uh, and we have a population that is arguably the sickest it's ever been. That's a problem. That's a real sort of, you know, in your face, wake up call that we're doing the wrong thing. And, you know, like I said, you know, I'm trying to do my part to, uh, uh, alter that in, in any way I can. And uh, hopefully, you know, more and more people will wake up to this. And maybe this coronavirus epidemic thing will, uh, or pandemic rather, will, uh, you know, wake people up to that fact because, you know, the, the healthcare system is, you know, I mean, one of the reasons it's so stressed out is because we're just overburdened with chronic disease, which shouldn't be there, certainly not to the degree that it is. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the, uh, another interesting factor about your book, you know, and what other people would say. Um, I think even vegans would say, you know, it's like, hey, you look back, you know, we never had these, you know, um, what was the word you used? Uh, certain kind of diseases, um, like, you know, the diabetes, like, you know, other cultures don't even have a word like that in their vocabulary. It just doesn't exist and never has happened. And, you know, we suffer from it, you know, on a, on a violent scale. And violent, I mean, because it's just so aggressively you know affecting our, our culture and our society livelihoods and uh, whether people can get health care or not um, I think uh, you know what uh, the other big one is uh, you know heart disease and you talked about this as well in the book is that most people are still going to get heart disease and um, you know I think you made the point that uh, even heavily plant eaters or vegans are you know one of the biggest causes of death that they're not causes but you know things that they eventually succumb to is a heart disease. You know, how, is, how and why is that still something that affects, um, let's say, vegan or vegetarians, as well as, you know, just regular man in general? Um, you know, uh, heart disease is, um, you know, going to be multifactorial. I mean, there's uh, a lot of things that are, some are beyond our control, age, sex, genetic history, um, you know, things that we, you know, obviously smoking is a huge factor for that. Uh, you know, when it comes to uh, dietary choices and what it does, I mean, obviously, you know, a vegan vegetarian diet, a diet that's low in fat, uh, has been associated with lower levels of LDL cholesterol, uh, also lower levels of HDL cholesterol. It can be associated with higher levels of triglyceride, uh, depending on how much carbohydrates in the diet or particularly uh, fast-acting refined carbohydrates. And so, uh, you know, whereas a, a ketogenic diet, a high fat diet, even a carnivore diet for some people can cause an increase in LDL cholesterol. And the question becomes how relevant is it in, in each of those situations? I would say that 
you know, I think it's, it's, it's unique to the individual situation. And we know that uh, in the absence of uh, inflammation, in the absence of diabetic pathophysiology, in the absence of elevated triglycerides, LDL cholesterol, I mean, just plain old vanilla LDL cholesterol. Now we can talk about oxidized versus glycated cholesterol. Those things have different uh, likely meanings as far as progression of disease. And so it's not just a black and white, hey, your cholesterol is high, therefore you need to lower it right away or you need to be on some medication. Uh, it should be a more nuanced conversation. And there's a lot of things you can assess or instead of assessing a risk factor, you know, you look at, uh, you know, disease and you look at the whole package of risk factors and, and most physicians and most people don't have the, either the time or the knowledge to do that, which is unfortunate. Mm -hmm. I would say that, like, you know, the biggest thing is just always people like, no, you can't do this. Um, you know, we're vegetarians or, or vegans. And you had a, a great point about this in the book. And I know from knowing you and, you know, you know, just following you and reading the book and whatnot, it's, you're, you're not advocating everybody to do this, you know, and, you know, the, I think the biggest thing and the toughest thing is that our healthcare or even our nutrition care has been like, hey, we're trying to do this for 330 million people. This is going to be good for everybody. But, you know, in order to do that, you need to take the time to figure out it for yourself. However, <laughs> this, um, what, what's the phrase you use? People are emotionally invested in the diets. I mean, I, I, why, why are people so emotionally invested in their diet and why do they want to dictate you know, the, the diets of the people around them. You know, I think, you know, for some people, they, they have an experience, uh, either in good or bad one way or the other. And they want to just, they feel like they're, they want to share it with other people. So like some people, you know, they've been suffering from a lifelong disease or illness and that goes away. It's very exciting to them and they're mm -hmm. very, very, very passionate. I mean, I get people that tell me, I really believe in the carnivore diet and I really want it to happen. And I, I tell these people, you shouldn't, I mean, you know, you should be objective about what, what works for you. I don't care what, what I, what, you know, what I promote or not. You know, I think at the end of the day, you need to believe in what, I mean, you should, you, you should recognize what's actually working for you and be dogmatic about that. But there are people that, you know, this is my way or the highway. This is the only way that works for me. And therefore, this is what you should do. And I know it's kind of a cop out to say everyone's different. Everybody should do something different, different. But I, but I do think that uh, regardless of what may or may not work for a large percentage of the people, whatever works for you is what you should be, you should be focusing on. I think you need to be uh, objective about it. I mean, just critically objective about what's going on and what's working. I mean, there's people that will accept a negative outcome just because it, it sort of, you know, allows them to continue with their beliefs. And we see that particularly in the, in the, in the vegan community where, you know, some of them will concede, hey, it's, well, it's not really about health. And I, I saw some vegan activist protesters and say, you know, um, you know, they were, they're chanting their various chants about, you know, this and that is not worth eating animals. And they, they said health is not worth eating animals. And that, that to me struck me as particularly odd saying that your own health is not worth it. Uh, you know, so that, that, that gets to the point where these people are really just, they turn it into a religion. And I try as much as, you know, there's, there's as much as there's this sort of tribalism and, you know, obviously people that, that sort of 
follow what I do can become tribalistic. And I, and I try to sit the set it out there as much as I can within reason and say, look, you know, you gotta, you gotta ultimately do what works. And if, if, a, if an all meat diet works for you, great. I'm, I'm there to support you. And I think, it, I think there's good reason for it, but you know, if you add some fruit in there occasionally and that worked for you too, great. Good for you. I'm not going to be the one to tell you that it's not, it's not the right thing for you. Yeah. I mean, what it comes down to, you know, it, it's for, first of all, it's just unbelievable that, you know, especially if, if someone's health isn't impacted, but they'd rather have the negative health aspects for somebody else. It's that, that's the part of it, you know, the dogmatic parts of, you know, any diets, you know, where they become so emotional or even, you know, dogmatic in a sense, like, hey, this is the only way and screw your own health. We need to put that completely aside. But I mean, there's another there's another big problem with America right there are tribalistic tendencies. Um, it comes back down to like, you know, one of the biggest, biggest factors here of vegan vegetarianism is like factory farming or, you know, just even the, the killing of animals just in general. For some people, you know, animals mean more to them than other human beings. Um, you know, as being a carnivore and as being a meat eater myself, it's always been like, you know, how can I, you know, responsibly still, because I, I think, you know, uh, you know, factory farming still is like just insane how we, you know, slaughter these animals and then eventually what it does to the land around it. You know, what, what, have you done any research on that? And is, are there any, you know, more positive ways or, you know, cost efficient ways that you know, people can source their meat and, you know, get good quality meat and consume to consume? Well, I mean, there, I mean, yeah, there's some tremendous uh, data coming out now on, you know, environmental impacts of meat, you know, when done uh, regeneratively. I mean, that, that is, I just interviewed a guy named uh, uh, Alan Williams, who's a professor uh, of uh, environmental studies. Uh, and he's been doing this stuff for decades and putting out all kinds of research. And it's showing that clearly, clearly, number one, that animals raised, you know, with, with appropriate grazing uh, patterns, uh, absolutely are a net carbon sink. They, 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 they benefit the environment in many, many ways. Um, ranchers that do adopt that type of policy are able to run more animals uh, on less land by far. They're able to restore the biodiversity. Uh, they are actually able to make more profit, you know, long-term. And, you know, according to his estimates, you know, looking at the available grasslands in the United States alone, the underutilized and unused grasslands, instead of finishing 30 million cattle a year like we do in the United States now, we could, we could easily do 50 million all on grass, all regenerative agriculture. We could completely cut out all of our greenhouse gas emissions and make it a net carbon sink if we were just to convert 40% of the agriculture to that type of system. Well, uh, and so that is doable, and the stat and the data is out there now that we could potentially do this. Um, but as far as you know, supporting those guys, I mean, I, I've got you know, I've got a website, meetrx.com, where we list all the ranchers or as many ranches as possible that do that practice in that way. People can source it from there. Now, um, the, qu the question becomes, you know, how much does it cost? Does it compete with the supermarkets? Uh, no, not yet, it doesn't. Um, you know, if enough people decide that that's how they want to do the meat, then, you know, when, when volume comes into that, and if you buy in volume, you know, if you buy a side of beef, or a quarter beef or something like that, you might be able to get some of that stuff at five, six, seven dollars a pound, which is, you know, within 
within reason for for many people. It's pretty know, good. I mean, I mean, for for many people, but you do have to commit to buying a big, you know, big, big bulk. And honestly, with this coronavirus, COVID nineteen stuff, I mean, a lot of uh, ranchers are turning to direct sales because a lot of them previously, you know, their 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 previous sources of revenue, whether they were selling to restaurants is you know, restaurants are all shut right mostly and so now they're looking at this and so this is a really good time and i don't know when this podcast is going to go out assume it's still going to be during these quarantine times but this is a really good time to sort of maybe get a relationship with these guys and i think it's uh you know i mean in the context of a carnivore diet i mean i eat far less food than i ate before uh, I, I waste almost no food uh, my expenses are pretty low, you know, relative to what I would eat before, because before you're eating, you know, just tons and tons of food. A lot of it's, you know, particularly fruits and vegetables, they go bad, they get thrown in the trash. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's actually can be pretty affordable, pretty economical. And you can certainly do things like ground beef and uh, eggs and you know stuff like that and even some fish. And, you know, you could you could do it very, very, in a very cost effective manner. No, I've I've toiled myself with you know going with the bulk buy. I know a few people you know who have gone along with it. Um, how many pounds is that? If they're uh, if you can get it down to you know, six seven pounds, like is a side of a, a whole side of a beef or a whole side of a cow? Well, I mean a cow. I mean a finished cow usually gets about five hundred five hundred pounds or so of beef. So you're looking at two hundred fifty pounds of beef or something like that, which is well, that's quite a bit of beef. I mean that's that's you know that's probably yeah, for some people, six months of food, you know, so that's, uh, yeah. that's, uh, that's, you know, not bad. You know, you, you might spend a grand or something like that and, uh, you know, feed yourself for six months, which is, you know, high quality yeah. meat. But, yeah. I mean, you think about most people who spend the stores, like, you know, they're looking at like a thousand a month, like minimum, including, you know, going out and cooking, um, which I think is the worst value you could possibly get going to restaurants usually is, you know, especially when you know how to cook, you're getting <laughs> such terrible value when you go out to a restaurant or a store, especially, you know, like when you said that six, $7 a pound for steaks. And I think about, you know, when I get a good deal, I just at the local grocery here, you know, it's like, wow, six, seven pounds, six, seven dollars, six or $7 for a pound buying a whole slab like that. That's, that's not terrible at all. No, no, it's good. It's, it's not a bad price at all. I mean, there's a lot more things you can spend money on. I mean, the fake meat stuff is, you know, 12 bucks a pound or something ridiculous for this complete process garbage but you know that's a different topic i was working on a project uh this this hoop bus project um it's this basketball school bus we actually took it cross country recently to chicago um it's partnered with the venice basketball league and uh one of the guys in the project is uh really trying to put push promote vegetarianism and i think he got sponsored by impossible burger and they tried to bring these out and i just like looked at him in the bag and it's just like the smell was just you know someone who eats me it's just like the smell was off, uh, whether they were sitting in the cooler and they kind of never went bad or aged and got like, you know, they started turning, they didn't start turning brown. And it was just like, even the smell, that, that smell that came off of it, I can't, I can't describe, you know, what it equated to, but because I know these things are just pumped with different, a lot of oil it's made of. Is that really the thing that keeps it consistent, like holding together or, you know? Yeah, I'm, I, you know, I mean, it's basically some either a soy or pea protein isolate and some sort of oil, either canola oil or soybean oil. Typically, those are the main two major ingredients. So it's basically fake food and fake food. 
you know, processed garbage, processed garbage, then it's a bunch of flavorings and fillers and, you know, uh, thickeners and uh, colorants and, and that type of stuff. So it's, it's really just really kind of gross stuff, but uh, <laughs> you know, anyway, that's. Yeah. I mean, I, I didn't want to touch it myself, but I mean, is that, is that more of like a psychological thing for our culture? Like, Hey, how do, how do, you know, we get people more aware about, you know, food education, food health, you know, what's something that's a little bit more healthier than not healthier, you know, that we're trying to, you know, make something that looks like something people are used to eating, you know, like, Hey, this is, looks like a burger, but it's not a burger. You know, what, what kind of, you know, cost to people's health, like to the benefit of people's health, because like you said, it's, it's just a bunch of combination of different isolates and oils to, you know, put this thing together. You know, is, is it, is there any actual, you know, I mean, can our bodies actually process all that stuff? One more I'm saying. Yeah, I mean, we process it. I mean, we process a lot of toxic things as well. I mean, we can detoxify a lot of things. And so, yeah. um, you know, the, the the funny thing is people will sort of complain and say, well, why do vegans, you know, make food to look like meat if they don't like meat? Well, the, 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 the reality is all those fake food, meat burgers, they're not bought by vegans. 95% of their, of their market is the omnivore, the people that are regularly eating meat, but now they're going to, they're going to, say once a week I'm gonna eat plant-based burgers, I think I'm gonna help the environment or I think it's gonna be healthier. And they bought into the sort of the propaganda because one, it's not healthier. And two, it's not really helping the environment either. And so it's it's just a, uh, you know, it's a very good marketing campaign and it's designed to make a lot of money for investors that are investing in this alternate protein market. And, uh, you know, this thing is projected to be 100 billion, 140 billion in the next, you know, by 2030. So that is where there's a lot of, a lot, a lot of marketing push, you know, celebrities being paid to push this stuff being, it's, they're paying restaurants to put it on the menu. I mean, they're, they're just really trying to create this market and they know because it's so profitable. I mean, these are cheap ingredients. They're cheap, you know, highly profitable ingredients, uh, plant, you know, waste products, basically, in, in many cases, uh, you know, just, they just use that and they can sell it to you and say it's good for you. They greenwash it, you know, say it's good for the environment, they health wash it, say it's good for our health. And none of those are really true, uh, but you're gullible enough because you don't, haven't done the time or spent the effort to actually look into it and you just buy into the marketing, which is, you know, I mean, it's just, you know, they, they've got the formula down. They've been doing it, they've been marketing to us for, you know, you know, seven or eight decades and they've, they've, they've polished what works and what's moves the needle. And so, you know, the fact that people are, you know, the American diet is already so awful. It's already so filled with processed junk food that throwing some fake meat burgers, which are more processed junk food, is not going to make any, any real difference. I mean, it's not going to the other. So it's, it's just more profit and then people continue to eat the garbage that they've been eating already and so it's not really likely to you know turn anybody from sick to sicker they're, they're just going to stay the same they're just going to stay kind of you know kind of sick yeah i mean it's i watched the game changers documentary i, I watched it uh, yesterday actually before i you know, was going to talk to you because it's like i was skeptical about watching it people you know i'd love to get your opinion on it you're always talking about diet your exercise your real fit guys like okay I'll, I'll give it a look I'll, I'll give it a watch. And, you know, it's just I never got any compelling, you know, points of like, hey, you need to do this. I mean, there's definitely the, uh, 
sustainability factor. You know, I'd love to uh, see the results of the uh, professor of uh, environmental studies that you're talking to. Love to see all that stuff because I think that's like the biggest thing that could you know bring people together on you know these very emotional sides of uh, diet diets is you know like hey how can we make this you know better planet so we can eat the ways we want to eat that may be benefiting us you know in special certain ways because um, I know they said in that documentary you know not just uh, it, it was more like a, a very salesy documentary I would say like hey this is why you need to be buying these vegan burgers and eating these things is because you know maybe in one day your, your penis might get a little harder or what was, what was the other one uh, um, what was the other one? Oh yeah that uh yeah, yeah, you know, livestock is more it contributes more towards climate change and the footprint of the earth than all of um, modes of transportation around the world, which, you know, that one was like, I don't know about that one. That one's a little bit hard to believe in terms of like planes, trains, automobiles. And we're talking, you know, billions of vehicles that are not making as much of an impact on the climate than animals were. I mean, that one was just, I, I couldn't get, get alongside that one. Did you see the documentary? The Game Changers documentary? Yeah. yeah, I did a 50 minute critique of that on my YouTube channel. Yeah, I watched it twice, unfortunately, because I wanted to <laughs> make sure I wrote down all the articles I did. Yeah, I, 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 there's, it's, it was just propaganda. It's just complete you know, nonsense, quite honestly. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's you mentioned something about this book, you know, um, more people have been killed, injured or psychologically damaged because of stupid nutritional advice than the combination of all the wars that have happened in the last century. I think it's a pretty, pretty out there statement. But, um, you know, when it comes down to seeing like who has been factoring, who has been paying and I, I hate being a conspiracy theorist, but, you know, it's not really. Uh, a theory anymore you know we know the sugar industry has you know conspired to pay harvard studies to say that this is going to be good for you and then they did this in the medical industry and it's something even game changers advocates that hey you know doctors scientists different industries are you know paying you know even probably them themselves to make sure you know we're going to say the studies are going to say what we want them to say you know and you know the onus comes still comes back on the individual you know we see this across all of our you know, problems in our society, you know, we can't rely on so many other people to do the work for us. We have to find out, we have to take the time, you know, practice a diet, try a diet, try this to a certain mode of exercise, understand your, your local politics, why things happen. Don't just trust and rely on one person to figure it out because, you know, in the end, human beings are, you know, deceptive, manipulative <laughs> characters and creatures, and we are capable of pulling off some dastardly things, you know, for the sake of other humans. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that's, Sorry, I went into a PSA right there, um, you know, for other people, because I think it's you know, one of the the onus and ownership uh, is, the, is the biggest thing lacking. And, you know, it's happened with our diets. It's happened with politics. It happens uh, across all of our society. Um, so, you know, I'm a big, uh, big proponent and thank you of uh, your work. Um, you do, because it's just, hey, I'm not telling you what to do. I just think, you know, people need to, to wake up and try something for themselves before they know if it's right or wrong. Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, we've got, you know, nutritional recommendation, nutritional policies that have, uh, you know, for better or worse, have not done what they've intended to do. I mean, I, I don't, I don't believe they intended to make people sick, but, you know, that we, we've, we've got a lot of sick people and I think we just made some mistakes and, and uh, we use data, we use 
sort of assumptions without testing it. Uh, and, you know, this just kind of goes back to probably 1977 with Senator McGovern and his little hearings and the, in the 1980 dietary guidelines, you know, when we first started doing those. And, um, you know, arguably we we're better off without the guidelines. I mean, I talked to a guy named uh, Gordon Guyatt, who is a professor of, uh, you know, evidence, basically. I mean, he's, he's, uh, he's an internal medicine doc who, in 1991, he actually invented the term of an evidence-based medicine. I mean, he's actually the guy who invented evidence-based medicine. He's been doing this since 1991 or even before. So the last 30 years of his career. And he basically, when I interviewed him, he basically said, look, the evidence around nutrition is so weak, we probably don't need to have nutrition guidelines because we can't figure out what people should be eating. And then you know, he was one of the co-authors on that very controversial study last year that said red meat was not harmful at all. There's no evidence, strong evidence to suggest we should cut back in any way. Obviously, that got a lot of pushback from the uh, sort of the uh, status quo folks. But, you know, this is a guy that probably knows evidence better than anybody on the planet. He basically says, look, the collective evidence, and they did the largest review ever on red meat that's ever been done. And they said, looking at the collective evidence, there's no real strong evidence. And so, you know, that's, that's I think it's a pretty powerful statement. Yeah. I mean, that's an interesting way to put it. Like, you know, I know uh, there's this one uh, independent uh, university, uh, Thaddeus Russell. I don't know if you've heard of that guy. Um Anyways, he runs his own online university where he's just like, hey, I was a professor in universities. This is just ridiculous how much we're charging and the certain levels of education of these uh, classic liberal arts educations that we aren't getting anymore. So he's made these, uh, it's called Renegade University. He's an interesting cat. Um, but same thing, you know, the certain amount of guidelines we're actually putting up there. I, I just thought of that now. It's sometimes might not even need it, might actually pull and... Um, messy the waters for people's minds then then actually benefits them that's an interesting way to look at it because I, I mean i think that there there is way too many things out there and that's where the, the snake oil salesmen's or you know any good marketer you know can put together a supplement and says oh, this is why you need this do you have this in your diet and i mean it just becomes you know again the burden on the individual and, you know, eventually the taxpayer. I think a lot of people don't realize that, you know, the collective health of everybody around you ends up hurting everybody. And, you know, whether it's in your pocketbook, whether that's, you know, just people getting sick right now, you know, let's so to say in this pandemic, you know, um, we're only as good as the, uh, the lowest common denominator around us, especially when it comes to health. Yeah, no, I don't disagree with that. That's, a, you know, just kind of interesting observation. Mm -hmm. What was uh, the biggest thing? Uh, and you were going back to Game Changers that you said that you uh, you picked it apart. I got to watch this 50 minute uh, video. Um, what was like the biggest thing you, you I mean, just. Well, you I mean, I it? think, you know, I think the, you know, this is a thing. They go in and, you know, first of all, it's all plant based. So it's, you know, it's kind of a vegan sort of champion as vegan athletes when, you know, they, they sort of say plant based, which could mean anything. You know, it could mean, you know, I eat a lot of meat and, and plants, you know, like, you like Tom Brady, for instance, they kind of reference him. When you look at Tom Brady's diet, who arguably is one of the better, potentially best quarterbacks in the NFL. And while he doesn't eat a diet, he, he eats a lot of plants in his diet. 20% of his diet comes from meat, fish, and eggs, right? That's more than the average American. The, more, the average American does not get 20% of his diet from meat, fish, and eggs. 
they get much less. So he's actually eating more meat than the average American, uh, you know, or those products. And the rest of it is just not junk food. And, and yeah, so, he's you know, eating very clean. Right. He's eating clean and, and a significant amount of meat. And they sort of claim that's plant-based. Well, I would say he's eating more meat than the average American does. Now, the average American might be eating more dairy and things like that. But, you know, that's a different topic. But the thing is, if you look at the athletes, and I actually listed every single athlete, particularly like the guys in the NFL that, were, that appeared in that film. And I, and I and the, the film was shot in 2017, didn't come out until 2019. So when you follow the careers, every single vegan athlete in that movie was either injured, retired, or significantly not playing anymore. So, you know, with rare exception. So you just see, you know, these guys, they do veganism for, you know, six months or a year, and they feel good, okay, in the beginning, and then their performance just tanks, particularly in sports where it requires strength or speed or contact sports. So it's just, you know, it's just a really bad diet for those people. And I think we're seeing that more and more. We saw it with Cam Newton this year. We saw it with Kyrie Irving. You know, we see it with all these you know, Boogie Cousins, I mean, all these different athletes, you know, what's the guy from the, the Bulls, uh, the Finnish guy, you know, he gave up red meat and he's had heart, heart troubles and injury trip plague. Heart troubles, Jesus. Yeah, so I mean, he's got all these having heart arrhythmias or something or heart palpitation, can't remember exactly what he had. But, um, so we see all these athletes that are testing it, which I think is great. I think the Game Changers has been the most impactful uh, movie for, for vegan diets in the way that it exposes it for how bad of a diet it is because we get a lot of athletes that are now you know sucked into the rhetoric trying it out and failing miserably you know they're 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 and they're trying to say well i they're trying to appeal to their audience you know they're the, the youthful audience you know the kids that they're like oh they want to save the world the planet and save the whales and save the trees and everybody's happy and it's all disney world um you know and they're young and you know they can eat whatever they want they can live on mcdonald's and still feel good but, you know, anybody that gets past 30, you know, they start to say, wait a minute, <laughs> that didn't work. And so, uh, you know, but the athletes, because they're pushing their bodies so hard, they quickly run into brick walls when it comes to these diets. And they find that, hey, I don't have the strength, I don't have the energy, I'm getting injured and I'm not healing. Uh, and and that, has a, that, that really serves to shorten your career or you know they you can call it career changers you know because a lot of these guys you know <laughs> you know cam newton's a free agent i don't know if he's going to get picked up if he does he may get limited playing time he may be you know announcing his his, his career if, if i don't know if he's if he's a good sports announcer but i mean you know you'll see these guys who are athletes and now they're they're, they're, they're going to be selling used cars or they're going to be sports announcers or they're not going to be playing anymore mm-hmm. and that's uh, that's the sad thing is they're, they're probably uh, shortening their career. I mean, you know, you see it over and over. Like the guy Scott, Scott Jurek, who ran the, ran the Appalachian Trail, very successful ultra marathoner as a vegan, but it took him months and months and months and even a year to recover from that, that trail run. Whereas an athlete that was eating a more normal diet with meat in the diet would have recovered much quicker. Right? We had a really inter- interesting interview with a gal who was on Naked and Afraid, and she's a Hollywood stunt woman who did it twice. Once as a vegetarian, she lost 10 kilos of weight, you know, living out in the jungle, you know, starving, you know, you know, eating lizards or whatever the hell they could catch. You know, she had to abandon her vegetarian way. She went back to a vegetarian diet. She said it took her two years to recover. She went back on the show a couple of years later as a carnivore on a carnivore diet. She said she went on the show, 
She lost weight again because there was no food around. Uh, went back to eating meat the next day, and she was back in the gym training two days later. Like, you know, totally, totally back to normal. So there's a huge difference in recovery capacity, injury healing, and I would say mm -hmm. probably injury prevention because I think uh, maintaining your muscle tissues, your connective tissue probably requires a higher amount of nutrition than you can get on a vegan diet. Yeah, I, that was definitely you know, exactly the next place I wanted to take it. You know, as an athlete myself and then, you know, watching these other, you know, you want to call them just ultra athletes. I mean, I think anybody who's a professional athlete has an insane body, you know, not alone a mindset to get where they have to get to. But, you know, you said it, you know, the Cam Newtons, the Kyrie Irvings, especially a basketball player, you know, I follow these guys and, you know, how much is those diets directly correlated to, you know, these guys' recovery and there's also staying healthy. And I didn't even know Boogie Cousins also did that because I mean, I know he's had, you know, an ACL tear, you know, just that was, that was, that was, uh, that was like six weeks after he went vegan. <laughs> really? I mean, I mean, it's been going, he's, he's been on and off for like three or four years now and he has like not gotten, you know, been healthy enough to play in a season. I mean, he played a final series and that's about it. So, um, I know you just mentioned it right now. It's kind of, you know, dependent on what, I mean, what, maybe what necessarily in the meat, you know, rather than from that plant diet, you know, is, is limiting these, um, these athletes from recovering. Well, I think it's, you know, a combination of, uh, you know, a number of things. I think, you know, I think one is they're probably uh, developing a higher, later, higher amount of reactive oxygen species by pushing such a high carbohydrate diet for one that kind of beats up the system, makes it harder to recover. And then two, I think it's just a general, you know, a generalized decrease in the quality and availability of the essential amino acids. Uh, there was a recent study that came out looking at um, availability of amino acids, comparing plant-based proteins, animal-based proteins. And these were proteins that were, these were supplements. These were, these were protein powders and they were, they were whey protein versus a plant protein, which were equalized and normalized for essential amino acids and leucine content. I mean, they were one for one, same, same inputs. But when they looked at the blood concentrations of those essential amino acids, they were much higher from the animal, animal derived product and, you know, from bioavailability standpoint. And that has to do with the fact that plant compounds have anti-nutrients that interfere with the absorption of, you know, minerals and, and, uh, you know, certain macronutrients, you know, polyphenols, for instance, you know, we hear a lot about the, 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 the goodness of polyphenols, but polyphenols block the absorption of amino acids. They block the absorption of essential fats. Uh, and so that, you know, I mean, I would argue is potentially a negative, negative aspect of that. So there's, uh, uh, you know, uh, and, you know, and then there, you can just go compound after compound, you know, creatine, carnosine, uh, you know, taurine, all these things have performance advantages, both physically and cognitively. And so when you don't have that in the diet, you know, I would argue that you're, you're putting yourself at, at, at a disadvantage. And so I, you know, I sometimes have to say, you know, I'm impressed by some vegan athletes who are able to do achieve things, but it's like, you know, it's like if you were a guy that was, uh, um, you know, going to be in the NBA and you're five foot four, you know, I mean, there's, you know, Muggsy Bogues or a few guys that, you know, might make it. But I mean, it's like you're putting yourself at a significant handicap. And, you know, why work harder when you can just, you know, be more efficient and work more intelligently? Yeah, I think that's been the biggest, uh, 
the hindrance towards ultra athletes is or professional athletes in general. I mean, we haven't seen a, you know, vegetarian or vegan, you know, super athlete that's been able to, you know, really push that distance over the long run. I mean, you talk about that one, the, the one guy who ran those 46 straight days, incredible, you know, but he, you know, let's tell someone else does it and doesn't need two years to recover. Well, um, I mean, and that's what happened. I mean, you know, it's got jerk, you know, since this Appalachian trail, and I don't know how many people have attempted it that have had an, an ultra marathon background. I suspect not that many, but he did it, hurt himself on the run towards hamstring, you know, struggled through, still, you know, still made it. But I mean, within the last two or three years, three other guys have beaten his time by, by they've smashed it by four or five days. And one guy was eating bacon, bacon and eggs for breakfast every day. So, I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's, you know, when you have these sort of, guys that don't have much competition you know you, you get a very different picture but like i said i haven't seen anybody who's like you know won first place you know or, or been a gold medalist or you know won xyz i think the one cyclist um the one woman did yeah so I, it's but like i said there hasn't been that you know mvp athlete say hey i'm able to do that like in an nfl or nba because i mean people don't realize that 82 games flights every single or every other day you know what air travel does to you sleeping in a hotel not your own bed like these these guys have just unbelievable bodies and if they are not recovering because they already have some of the best doctors and treatments following them around but you know the only factor we can look into to compare is still what are they putting into their bodies on a you know three four five times a day that they may be eating comes back to food you know so that's where especially in the pro athlete thing i can't be you know, I hope Cam Newton uh, can recover because that shoulder and it's funny. Kyrie Irving also has that shoulder injury as well. I almost thought it was a, a shoulder thing <laughs> that they can't recover on. Well, he, well Cam, you know, Cam had his foot, you know, that was this Liz Frank fracture, his foot, which or sprain rather ligament injury, which uh, was what basically put him out. But he was also dealing with his shoulder issues. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's. Uh, I don't know. The, I think his career, I think, is effectively done. I mean, honestly, I think he's just, uh, you know, I mean, he, he'll never play at the level that he once played at. Um, he, uh, you know, and whether it was because he went vegan or not, it's hard to say. But certainly I, I would say that it didn't help. And it certainly hasn't helped his recovery. Uh, you know, I mean, you look at guys like uh, Patrick Mahomes, who had a, a, patella, a patella, patella dislocation, midway in the season and what happened to him he bounced back recovered and won a super bowl and you know he's a he's a mediator you know so you know there's i mean these are obviously anecdotal yeah absolutely anecdotal we're saying right now both of us um but it's funny because i mean i remember like i've had some uh, major surgery uh you know ruptured and tore a kidney had to you know get that thing patched and fixed up um but, you know, from my own research and what other people said, you know, if you're going to be cut open at all, you know, you better be eating a certain amount of protein and a certain amount of iron. You might be getting back into your system because, you know, you're exposed, you know, and, you, you know, in terms of recovery and getting, you know, they're very small, you know, uh, microscopic uh, kidney because they do it like through the stomach now rather than cutting you open like a like a jar <laughs> um, or a can, excuse me. They, uh, you know, I just didn't want to take that chance. You know, it's like. If you know something can help, and especially help with you know rehealing um, tissues in your body, I mean, you got to do it. You, you can't. Well, I mean, you know, if you're a, if you're a, if your livelihood depends on that, if you're a you know multi million dollar athlete, my goodness, <laughs> you know, I, I'm just shocked at the uh, 
you know, and I guess it's kind of, kind of infringes upon freedom of choice and stuff like that with, with these uh, teams. They can't control what people eat, but you know, my goodness, if you are, if you care about your career and as you know, arguably if you work so hard because you don't get into the professional sports without a ton of effort and work and commitment. Sacrifice, oh man. Sacrifice and then to, to screw it all up by having a stupid diet, just, I mean, it's 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 beyond, you know, it's, it's, it's beyond stupid is what I think. I mean, it's just, it just makes no sense. Now, I don't want to be respectful of your time, so I'm gonna start um, closing up, wrapping up. Um, what I didn't know about you in the book, and as a guy who's lived overseas, um, became a rugby fan. Uh, once, you know, living with a bunch of Brits and Australians in Kuwait. Um, but I didn't know, like, did, did you play with the All Blacks or like against the All Blacks? Or, I mean, did you have the opportunity to do that? Because that's, as a rugby fan, that's amazing. Yeah, so I played in this Premier League in New Zealand in a place called the Waikato. And so, you know, I was on my, you know, the team I had, we would play regularly against teams where All Blacks would be on the team. So I would be on the field against New Zealand All Blacks. But I wasn't playing collectively against the entire team. But I played against, you know, really high caliber players and this is i mean this is only my second year playing rugby i think or something like that because i was just i was just a pretty natural athlete i could jump i could run real fast i was strong you know i you know so that was quite an honor to do that and you know playing these big giant stadiums you know whereas in the united states when you're playing you're playing in the you know behind some middle school with you know 50 people watching <laughs> you go to that and you go to 10, 20,000 people in the stands. And, uh, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a big difference. Uh, oh yeah. Where they, where they, you know, they, they, it's a religion over there. Quite, quite honestly. Yeah. yeah. I, had, I had a great time. I loved, I loved uh, my time in New Zealand, great people and uh, great culture. And they're just a really sport, you know, sports fanatic nation and not just watching, but participating. They have a very fitness minded culture there. At least mm -hmm. much of it was when I was there. Yeah, I've gone from playing in front of 30,000 people in college to, you know, a recreation center in somewhere in Ukraine. <laughs> it's just a, it's not a underwhelming, but, you know, just a complete shock, you know, just say, okay, what am I doing? Or do I really want to keep this going? Um, but I want to talk about the injury too you had. You were playing against a Russian team or just it was a Russian guy who had just like, just came off and just started stomping you? Yeah, well, I mean, this was the last, this was actually my last rugby match. I was playing, uh, I was actually playing for Denver. You know, I was back in the U.S. and we were playing this uh, tournament in Las Vegas. There was a Russian team and I was actually having a good game. I'd scored like three tries and was really doing well. But I was, you know, I was at the bottom of this, uh, what we call a ruck, which is a pile of people. And my, you know, my, my body strapped and my head sticking out and there was a Russian guy just stomping on my head. You know, and I got up and I had blood coming out of my ears. And, you know, I was just, you know, I was just, it was just one of those things, you know, it just happens. And, you know, you kind of, you know, you deal with that. It's not the first time I've been bleeding on the field. You know, I've broken my nose one time and split my chin a few times. But, um, you know, when I was 30 and I was just like, you know, I'm, I'm getting pretty old. You know, at that time, I thought 30 <laughs> was old. Now I don't. <laughs> but, you know, and that was, that was kind of a decision that like, okay, now it's time to stop playing, go back to medical school. And so I, you know, because I, I had taken a hiatus from medical training to spend seven years playing rugby and then, you know, was in the military at the time and they ended up paying for me to go back to medical school. And, uh, you know, that's, you know, how that happened. Yeah. You have a really, really incredible story. And I really advise people to read the book. Um, simple as that. It's called the carnivore diet and, um, you can get it anywhere. I know. I think I read it on my Kindle. I was, uh, definitely going to ask you, see how I can get a signed copy sent over. I got to send a book over to you, PayPal you love to sign copy of it. Um, 
And yeah, please let people know where they can find, you know, uh, let them know about the book, but any other information about the carnivore diet, I think you mentioned meat RX, all your social medias, please, um, let people know are curious. Cause I know a lot of people after they listen to the first show, they definitely gave it a try and they're in the closet though about their carnivorism where they're like, they'll send me videos of all the steak they're ordering, but I can't post this online. I can't post this online. <laughs> yeah. I'd be proud of eating a steak. My goodness. Who cares? <laughs> you know, I mean, why would you worry about eating a damn steak? I mean, um, you know, I, I, I gotta tell you, I mean, I'm really super excited about meterx.com. I mean, this is, I spend every day there, every morning I interact with people. We have, online virtual you know meetings you can get in there and I, we can speak directly um i do that every day at 9 a.m on mdrx and then we have all kinds of support meetings for people it's got everything you need to get started on the diet and if you need some more assistance some coaching some help we've got just incredibly affordable coaching you know it's like 18 bucks for half an hour which is you know i mean that's a couple cups of coffee basically i mean it's uh for what may be a very valuable uh, you know, session. Um, and we've just got all the resources our recipes, um, you know, research, you know, discounts. We've, we, we've negotiated discounts on meat for our members. So it's a well worth, I think, a, a good venture. And we're growing and adding things all the time. And so it's a, it's a pretty uh, uh, nice place to be. Um, social media, you know, Instagram, I'm at Sean, which is S-H-A-W-N, Baker, B-A-K-E-R, 1967. Uh, I've got, you know, pretty you know, I guess interesting following there. Sometimes I piss people off and they leave and sometimes they come back and, uh, you know, sometimes I'm, you know, I, I tend not to pull any punches and, you know, whatever. Some people like it, some people don't. Uh, I'm on Twitter, S Baker MD. And then on YouTube, I put up, I upload a YouTube video almost every day. And, uh, you know, again, same sort of thing. Some people get pissed off by what I have to say. Some people don't and some people like it. So, I've learned uh, that, that you got to have thick skin if you're going to be in social media and, and, you know, you can't please everybody, you know, so it's just, you know, no matter what you do, somebody's going to like it. Somebody's going to complain about it. So it's just the way it goes. And, you know, it's who I am. And uh, anyway, I'm having fun with it. This is, uh, this has been a very interesting second half of my life. I should say is, you know, I'm in my fifties now and uh, uh, yeah, still enjoying things. Ain't that the truth about thick skin and social media. Um, Sean, thank you again. Really appreciate you taking the time during these weird times to come on the podcast. And uh, everybody else, thank you so much for tuning in. Make sure, go ahead and like, comment, subscribe if you're watching this on YouTube. If you're listening to this, go ahead and hit the subscribe button. Go leave us a five-star review. Definitely a great way to support the show. And there is a Patreon thing. If you really, really love this podcast and you want to support this way, there's ways to do that. You know, got to keep this uh, bus moving, keep the bus afloat. And... Uh, that's pretty much it, guys. New podcast, new videos always coming out. So stay tuned and hit the subscribe button. Have a great day, guys. And thank you again, Sean. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks, Brian. Yeah. Yeah. This is the moment uh, for those who...